All right. Good morning. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Wonderful. Uh, my name is Pastor Alberto. For those of you that are joining us in person or online, thank you so much for worshiping with us. As Christopher said, we are, we are kicking off uh, Advent, which is an amazing time, one of my favorite, favorite times on the calendar. Uh, and we are kicking off a brand new series called Jesus, God with us. And so when we think about Advent, Advent means uh, arrival, the arrival of someone or something. Uh, we've heard this word used before, like the advent of television. Uh, I don't know when that was, uh, sometime long ago, but when TV arrived, it changed culture, it changed the nation. Uh, maybe the advent of the iPhone, uh, which was in 2007. I remember that one because uh, I'm an Apple fan. And though the iPhone wasn't created in 2007, it arrived into our world in 2007. And so what we're celebrating this season is the arrival of the eternal infinite God who exists outside of creation and he arrives into his creation in the form of a baby. And his arrival changes everything. His arrival is the long awaited prophetic hope uh, that the people of God have been longing for and we've experienced 2000 years ago. And so what exactly are we celebrating? What, 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 what aspects of this arrival are we uh, remembering? Uh, well, for centuries, Christians have remembered uh, these four Sundays as the arrival of hope, as the arrival of peace, as the arrival of joy, and the arrival of love. So Jesus is God with us in the flesh, and he is the embodiment of hope. Jesus is the embodiment of peace. Jesus is the embodiment of joy and the embodiment of love. And so when we gather these next few Sundays, as Christopher said, we're gonna light a candle and each one of these candles uh, represent hope, peace, joy, and love. And the reason why we light them is because Isaiah says that Jesus is the light of the world that has come to shine his light on us. We who are a people who walked in darkness, a great light has shone on us. And so this is a sacred tradition that the church has observed for centuries. Lighting a candle representing the light of the world has arrived. Church, hope has arrived. Peace has arrived. Love has arrived. Joy has arrived. And so for the next few weeks, up until uh, the fourth uh, Sunday, the Sunday before Christmas, we're gonna tackle, uh, unpack each of these themes, each of these ideas. Uh, Jesus is the embodiment of hope. Jesus, God with us, uh, bringing hope. So today, uh, we're gonna unpack the advent or the arrival of hope. Uh, to do that, we're gonna look at Isaiah chapter nine, verse two through seven. This has been called the poem of Hope, And I want to invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter, two, uh, Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 2 through 7. And I want you to read this with me. This is a very familiar passage. You might have heard this before, but I want to invite you to open up your heart all over again and ask the Lord uh, to help you look at his word and enjoy it this morning. Let's read together. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. 
For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every brute of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. I love that. Y'all just jumped in and read it with me. Let's go. I loved it so much. We were going to do that again next Sunday. So whoever started that, uh, bless you. Uh, I, uh, participation is, is better than observations. I've heard one church leader say. So, so look at us participating this morning. I am so pumped. I was already excited to preach this word. You just got me fired up. Um, so we're going to unpack two ideas here uh, as we sort of break down this text. We're going to talk about the arrival of fear And then second, the arrival of hope. If you're taking notes, the arrival of fear and the arrival of hope. Let's pray and ask God to prepare our hearts as we dive into this word. Lord, I ask that you would be with us this morning. Uh, I praise you for being the light of the world who has entered into our dark situation uh, to bring life, to bring hope, to bring joy, to bring peace, to bring love. As we take these next few moments to look into the word, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would uh, till the soil of our heart and prepare it to receive this word. And Lord, would it be a good seed that yields an abundant harvest of transformation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The arrival of fear. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now, now before we can really understand how this is a poem of hope, we first have to consider the hopeless situation that the people of God find themselves in. So to do this, we're gonna consider the first part of verse two. It says, the people who walked in darkness. Now, this is very descriptive of the culture and the people group that Isaiah is writing to. So when Isaiah says that there's a people who walk in darkness, he's not talking about a group of people who, who take a casual stroll outside during the evening. That's not what's coming to mind. Rather, when the scripture uses the word walk, it's always used to represent a person's lifestyle. Whenever you see that word walk, it's representing a person's lifestyle. And so what Isaiah is saying here is that there's a group of people. In fact, it's a whole Hebrew nation and their lifestyle is summarized in one word, darkness. They have adopted a lifestyle of darkness. So what is this darkness and and what does it look like? Well, this is what Isaiah says in in chapter one, verse four. He says, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evil doers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord and they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. In fact, Isaiah would spend nine chapters at the beginning of his book describing how sinful and broken this nation is. Now that's a lot of background and history 
to give upon a people group, which kind of informs us that it, it was pretty bad. Okay, I, I can probably, uh, I don't have any enemies, but I couldn't write nine chapters about them. Uh, and yet Isaiah is looking out into the brokenness of the world and says, man, pen to paper, he cannot stop describing how broken and evil and dark this nation was. He says it's a sinful nation, a nation that wasn't really giving itself over to holiness or righteousness. It wasn't participating in worshiping and following God. It was actually trying, uh, uh, people satisfying the desires of their belly, their flesh satisfying the desires that oppose God. He said they're laden with iniquity. In other words, they're dragged down with this burden of guilt, estranged, meaning to be separated or alienated. The idea is, is, is uh, kind of like a, a, a picture of marriage. Uh, uh, God, the father is the groom and this people group, this nation is supposed to be the bride, but this bride has walked out on her husband, turned her back, on God, walked off and never looked back. And and hear me, church, whenever you walk out on God, whenever you turn your back on God, whenever you say, "I'm, I'm, I'm done walking with Jesus, I'm going to do my own thing, you never walk in the direction of hope. You never walk in the direction of life and faith and joy. You don't walk towards light. You actually walk towards uh, the direction of destruction and more chaos and more brokenness. A people who have walked out on God, who have turned their backs on God, who walked off and never looked back. And then he says, they're children who deal corruptly and have forsaken the Lord. So what is this about? Well, the world that Isaiah is living in, uh, there are threats of war and chaos and corruption all around. Um, So we're about to unpack some history right here. And and sometimes the tendency is when we get into the nitty gritty, the details, it's easy to check out, to pick up your phone, go on Instagram. I'm going to uh, ask of you not to do that. Uh, In fact, what we're about to unpack is so crucial to understanding this text that I believe it's going to help us be a people who live by hope. Uh, So I'm gonna ask you to lean in for a minute. If if history tends to bore you, uh, I'm coming for you right now. So, So join with me, okay? So there's threats of war and chaos and corruption all around, much like the day and age that we live in. Always threats of war, always threats of chaos, corruption everywhere we look. And there's one particular empire, one particular nation that is rising in power and dominating the known world. And this nation is called Assyria. Remember this, this Assyrian nation has grown into an empire that has expanded and has grown and now occupies the outskirts of Jerusalem. So the political leaders are fearful of this nation and rightly so, they yield tons of power and they know what they're capable of. This nation would storm other nations by force, overtake them, uh, move them into slavery, keep them in bondage and rob them of life. And so they were fearful, they were scared and this nation stood in direct opposition to the values and the ways of the Lord. Now, Israel, was supposed to be a nation that embodied the kingdom of God. Israel was intended to be a nation where King Jesus was the ruler and and he reigned over all the people. And it was supposed to be set up in such a way where the people of God would live and worship him and represent the kingdom of God to the world around them. 
And then the outside world will look in and say, wow, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is amazing. Let's adopt this worship and live in this kingdom. Now, this is short-lived because what we see is that instead of building empires and nations that bow down to King Jesus, we see nations and empires being built that bow down to man. And instead of being building kingdoms and nations that would rule and reign with God and for God, kingdoms and nations are rising that rule violently and oppose God. And Assyria was one of them. Israel was supposed to embody the kingdom of God, but now there are kingdoms that embrace values that oppose him. And Assyria was one of those kingdoms. So the king of this Hebrew nation, his name is Ahaz. Remember this. Um, he finds himself drowning in fear from potential threat of the Assyrian nation. Now, remember what I said earlier. Uh, this Hebrew nation was supposed to be governed influence and led by the Lord. And instead of turning outwards to God to find refuge and security in him because of the threat of another empire invading his nation, Ahaz turns inward and looks for a solution within himself. And instead of trusting the Lord and saying, Lord, what do you want us to do? There's an enemy on the outskirts and this enemy is coming in. And I've seen this enemy destroy homes and villages. I've seen this enemy enslave people and oppress people and rob them of food and livelihood. And they're marching in. In fact, I can see them. Lord, what do you want me to do? Ahaz does not seek the Lord. He does not look outward. He looks inward for a solution. And instead of trusting in the Lord and leading the nation in the ways of the Lord, Ahaz begins to form political alliances with the enemy nation in hopes of avoiding war and oppression. This king who was instructed to lead this Hebrew people begins to form a political alliance with the enemy in hopes of avoiding oppression war and enslavement. He says, maybe I can form this, this good old alliance. Hey, Assyria, my name is Ahaz. I rule this people. I, I don't want any problems here. It seems like you have a really good thing going for you. I don't wanna stand in the way. Uh, actually, I, I, I want to join you. I, I don't wanna be your enemy in all of this. I want to be your partner. In fact, I'll be on your side. We can do things your way. You can have whatever you want. Just don't kill us. And don't enslave us because we've seen how that goes for others. Isaiah is the prophet of God and he's appointed by God to, to speak on his behalf and call the people to follow and trust him, to remind him that there is a, uh, uh, to remind the people that there is a God who cares for them, that there's a God who's a mighty refuge who will defeat the enemies of the day and age if we worship him and bow down to him. And Isaiah's job is to call the people to follow God, to trust God, to repent of their sin and place their faith in the one true living God. And so as he sees this political alliance form, as he sees King Ahaz getting ready to bow down to the enemy, he calls him out. He says, what you're doing is terrible. You need to repent. You need to quit trusting in yourself. You need to quit finding a solution with yourself and you need to trust God and follow him, not form political alliances with a nation that serves false gods. 
The reason this is so tragic, church, is because uh, in the day and age that Isaiah finds himself, in this context, the form of political alliance meant that you would change your ways to appease the people around you. To form a political alliance was more than an agreement on pen and paper. It meant that whoever you were making an alliance with, you would begin to shift your lifestyle to match theirs. You would adopt their culture. You would adopt their customs. You would adopt their way of living. You would adopt their beliefs. And the Assyrian way of life was one of walking in darkness. In fact, the scripture says that everything they did was evil in the sight of the Lord. In 2 Kings, uh, it describes these evil practices. They're called despicable, such as burning your children as an offering to false gods, bowing down to idols, bowing down to every single craving that rises up in the flesh and opposes God, living however you want to live, a lifestyle of darkness that opposed the kingdom of God and fully embraced evil. And what King Ahaz is doing when he makes this political alliance is he's saying, we'll do things your way. This people group is supposed to serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true and living God, live in such a way where they worship God, bow down to him, love him, and create a world of flourishing. But your gods are cool, we'll bow down to those. And as long as you don't kill us, we'll do whatever you want us to do. We'll pray to whoever you want us to pray to. We'll do whatever you want with our children as long as you don't enslave us and oppress us. Instead of being a nation that lived for God, instead of being a nation that served the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who we see in Genesis all the way up until this moment of history, who is known for being faithful and preserving and protecting his people, instead of serving the one true God, Ahaz makes a deal that now welcomes the Assyrian priests into the Hebrew nation, into the Hebrew place of worship, and they begin to worship false pagan gods that shapes the Hebrew nation. Isaiah sees this and calls it out. And he says, you think this will preserve you? You think this will protect you? No, this will destroy you. He says, you just made an enemy with, you just made a deal with the enemy thinking he will protect you, thinking that that he has your best interest in mind, but that's not the kind of enemy you're dealing with. In fact, you just made a deal that will destroy this whole nation. How did it get this far? How did this happen? This is a tragic story among many of a broken king, King Ahaz, a broken person who was driven by fear. Fear of the what if. What if Assyria closes in on us and they invade us and kill us and oppress us? What will happen if they overthrow us? What will happen if they take away our freedom and enslave us? Fear of the future. Fear that an empire much bigger than them would destroy him. So he makes a political alliance that leads to a nation's destruction and further darkness. That fear turned into a self-fulfilling prophecy. And Assyria would have a powerful, dominating hand over this Hebrew nation that would oppress them, enslave them, 
leave them hungry and hopeless. Now let's pause here and, and take a moment to consider how fear can make us even more hopeless and drive us to make decisions that actually further our destruction and not help us. Have you allowed fear to ever drive you to a place that God did not want you to go because you were trying to take matters into your own hand and instead of looking Godward outwards, you look inward for a solution? Have you allowed fear to make you turn inward for a solution instead of turning outwards to God? Have you allowed fear to make you consider making financial decisions that you believe will bring you hope and make a better life, but actually will enslave you in further debt? Have you allowed fear of the future uh, to cause you to make decisions in this present moment that actually compromise your walk with God instead of nourishing it? Have you allowed fear of rejection make you into a person that God never intended you to be? And instead of finding security in the Lord, you find false refuge in being the version of yourself that is less susceptible to rejection. And yet that version of life doesn't create hope. Looking inward to combat fear only leaves us more hopeless. And from chapter one to chapter nine, there is an indictment on this nation and their king for willfully sinning against the Lord and letting fear uh, lead them to worship false gods, letting fear drive them to give themselves over to wickedness so they could appease and satisfy the enemy. And this fear that leads them to all sorts of sinful practices breaks the heart of God. This fear doesn't lead to hope, it leads to hopelessness. But remember, this is a poem of hope. Isaiah has pinned down these words that are supposed to strike hope in the people that are experiencing hopelessness. So after nine chapters of an indictment on evil and corruption, Isaiah begins to turn the corner and he pins down the very words of God. These are the words of God that God gives Isaiah to give to the people. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. So despite the darkness and despite the wickedness and despite the evil that they've been giving themselves over to, God makes a way where there seems to be no way and he begins to shine a light on them of hope that would lead to their ultimate salvation and refuge. Church, right here is really good news. I need to be reminded of this and so do you that despite the darkness that you walk in and give yourself over to, despite the things that you keep telling God, I will never do, but you keep doing, and the sinful things that keep coming up in your heart, God does not withhold his light from shining into your heart. In fact, he's not even waiting for you to arrange and rearrange and get your life together because in this moment of darkness, God says, I will shine a light on you that transforms everything. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. Where is this joy? It's coming. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The, you're hungry right now. There's no food to eat. There's no hope. And yet there's a hope coming that will bring about a joy, like enjoying an amazing Thanksgiving meal that we just did. I hope yours was amazing. Mine was. Uh, shout out to my Mexican family for making Mexican Thanksgiving a thing 
I didn't know you can make cornbread spicy. Ask, ask my wife, it's a thing. <laughs> it's a feast of joy. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. None of this pain will be wasted. And here's our hope, church. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this where every single king has failed you where every single uh, judge has failed you, where every single prophet has failed you, there will come a savior who will not disappoint you, who will not fail you, who will not yet let you down, who will actually bring about a kingdom that transforms everything out there and makes it good again, who will bring life, who will bring deliverance, who will bring joy. In other words, despite the wickedness of this nation that's led astray and the corruption and the brokenness that plagues this people who walk in darkness, guess what? A light is coming. A light that casts out all the darkness and shines on the people of God. A light of hope and rescue. A promise is given that God will rescue his people from their brokenness. Now, what does this mean for us? Isaiah found himself in a hopeless situation, in a hopeless circumstance. His heart is breaking over seeing the people of God turn their backs on him. His heart is breaking and he's gripped by anguish as he sees people bow down to false gods instead of bowing down to the one true God. His heart is breaking when he looks at his brothers and sisters and they're covered in blood, not because they've made sacrifices to the one true God, but because they're sacrificing their children to false gods. His heart is breaking. And he finds himself in a hopeless situation. But hear me, church. He did not let his circumstance dictate his hope. And this is what makes biblical hope so much better than what this world has to offer. In the Bible, hope is never wishful thinking. Isaiah addressed it himself. I look out into the world and all I see is darkness. All I see is brokenness. All I see is destruction. Uh, Biblical hope is not wishful thinking that pushes aside the pain and the grief that we experience. Rather, it enters into that and says, there's good news coming. Biblical hope is not optimism that, hey, tomorrow will be better. Why? Because Jesus said things will get worse. Biblical hope is not escapism where we say, let me escape my circumstances. Let me escape my job. Let me escape this relationship. Let me escape this city. Let me escape this town so that I can experience hope. Escaping our circumstances never makes us feel better. And Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords did not enter into his creation to escape it but to redeem it, to enter into it and restore it. Glenn Packiam says that Christian hope is a confident assurance. 
grounded in God's promise and faithfulness as revealed in the scriptures and in Christ Jesus. Christian hope is this confidence that uh, Jesus will, res- uh, uh, that the triune God will bring about the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come at the time of Christ's appearing. This will make heaven and earth new and one by means of what has already been accomplished at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The hope of the Bible, the hope that's offered to us in the scriptures is a confident assurance anchored, rooted in who God is and what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. So this means that hope is not found in our circumstances and hope will never be found in our circumstances. Isaiah, who found himself in a hopeless circumstance, did not look out into the world and say, people are dying, People are going hungry. This nation is bowing down to false gods. Wow, my heart is raging with hope. No, he didn't say that. In fact, in the previous chapter, this is what he says. I will hope in the Lord. I will hope in the Lord. And this is really good news for people like you and me, that when we look out into the world and you look out into your life and you look out into your bank account and you look out at the decisions you've made and it's filled with hopelessness and regret and shame and guilt, guess what? Your hope does not have to be dictated by those circumstances that actually your hope can be found and anchored in Christ who is above your circumstances, who is above your decisions, who is above your guilt and shame. And so when we look out into the world, the way that Isaiah looked out into his broken world, my hope is not dictated, is not anchored, or is not rooted by what's going on out there. Rather, it's anchored in Jesus Christ the unshakable king that we just sang about? Do you believe he's the unshakable king? Do you believe that while everything out there can be shaken and stirred, if we find our faith and place it in him, we can become anchored people who do not let our our circumstances dictate our hope. But we have this confident assurance that I know who God is. I know that he's faithful. I know that he's good. I will trust in him. I will hope in him. We fast forward to the arrival of hope. 700 years have passed. Assyria is no longer the oppressive nation. It's now Rome. And it's this broken history with Israel that if it's not one nation oppressing them, it's another. And the people are still walking in darkness. In fact, it's been 400 years since God has spoken. And the people are still waiting for the arrival of a savior. A savior that would come and bring deliverance from Rome. A savior that would come bring freedom and the hope that was promised and prophesied about. A savior that would come and bring healing to the land and release the oppressive rule of this enemy nation. But God is coming, not to free them from a nation, but to free them from sin. And hope has arrived in a very unexpected way. Let's look at Matthew chapter one, verse 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Don't let fear rule and reign in your heart. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, uh, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. The long awaited hope has arrived. The hope that Isaiah wrote about 700 years earlier. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This hope arrives in the form of a baby. This is our hope. Hear me, church. That we serve a God who keeps his promises. And this is how Matthew kicks off chapter one by reminding us of what Isaiah has said, that there is a hope. The good news does not start off with what things look like right now, but it points back to God's word. And this hope reminds us that our circumstances and scenarios don't dictate where our hope is. Our hope is not found in what we see, but it's found in who God is and what he's done. And if God speaks, if God says things, then we have hope regardless of where we are or where we live, that he is faithful and that he is good. Yeah, it might take 700 years. It might take 40 years, 20 years. It may be in your lifetime. It may be in somebody else's lifetime. But if God said he will do it, he will get it done. And so we can look at this word and we can see the character and the faithfulness of who Jesus is and be reminded that God is a God who keeps his promises. And so when fear comes into my heart and I wanna let it rule and reign in my life, this word offers me a hope that is not dictated by my circumstances and reminds me I can be confident that God is good. Think about how good that is. Think about how amazing this encouragement is. That you can look around and everything looks hopeless. Everything looks like it won't change. And if you only look at the outside, you'll remain hopeless and you'll be in despair. But if we look at God and trust in his word and remember he is a God who keeps his promises, then our hearts begin to be filled with hope even in the most desolate places. And this is how this book kicks off. People seeking hope hope and the prophet of God announcing that hope has arrived. Hope is with us. Now think about what this means for us. We have a tendency, myself included, to think of God 
in, very, in a very ordinary and routine way. But what does that say about how mighty and powerful God is when we run to other things to bring us hope? When we experience inner and external turmoil and we run to a thousand different places and spaces to bring us hope, instead of drawing near to the God who's drawn near to us and is with us, embodying hope. You see, we're all living in a world that is dark and gloomy and we're craving hope. We're longing for hope. We're waiting for it to arrive and we're looking everywhere for it. And the temptation is to find it everywhere in anything or anyone except Jesus. We long for hope and a potential life change. God, would you change the circumstance that I find myself in? Would you, would you bring a new career? Would, would you just get the semester over with so that I can, I can experience life again? We long for hope and beauty and making ourselves the most optimal version of ourselves, the version that we're satisfied with when we look at our phone and see ourselves, the version that makes us feel okay when we look in the mirror and say, okay, now, now I feel significant. Now I feel worthy. And we crave that moment of hope that makes us feel like life is worth living. We long for hope and and breakthrough. God, would you bring breakthrough in a relationship so that I can experience intimacy and not be lonely because this place that I find myself is filled with so much darkness and gloom. I just want to experience life. We long for hope in our mental health. We want to experience relief from what's going on internally. We see hope in the areas of brokenness in our life. But hope, church, is not found in more money. Hope is not found in the form of better health. Hope is not found in the form of political change. Hope is not found in the form of a better society and world created as a result of a good leader. No. This hope arrives in the form of a baby. And he called himself Emmanuel, God with us. Hope is not found in our circumstances. It's not found in wishful thinking. It's not found in creating the best future for ourselves. No, church, hope is much better than that. Hope is a person who is with us, God with us, arriving as Jesus Christ. And so this means hope is anchored in a person. Hope is centered on a person. Hope is not dictated by our circumstances. So what do we do with this? Well, let's reconsider how hope arrives in the form of a baby. Uh, Jesus could have arrived as a grown man in majesty on a stallion marching into battle, uh, gathering his army and saying, let's overthrow the enemy of the age. He will do that when he arrives during his second coming. He could have arrived as the long-awaited king, been ushered uh, on his throne and rule and reign from the moment of his arrival into the world. But no, he comes as a baby, not to conquer, not to overthrow, not to demand our adoration and force us to love him and worship him. Rather, he arrives in gentleness. He arrives in humility 
and he's still the king of the universe. Now consider this. How do you approach a newborn baby? With a gentle embrace. Shout out to the Stricklands. They uh, welcomed Owen James into the world last week, I believe. Yeah, last week. And uh, with their permission, I would love to hold their sweet baby boy. And uh, my son, I, I got one under me, so I think I'm good at it. Uh, but I would not approach their sweet, precious boy and say, give him to me and hold him aggressively and toss him and turn him. Uh, although apparently they can take that, but I, I've never tried that. No, I would approach this fragile human being with gentleness, with care, and embrace. And Jesus comes into this world and he reminds us when he's born of a baby, hear me, that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the creator of the whole universe and everything in it can be embraced can be approached, can be held because he is gentle, he is humble, he is good. And it seems like we can navigate this world trying to embrace a whole bunch of other things, trying to grab a hold forcefully of something that will bring us life, aggressively searching for a new career, aggressively searching for a partner, aggressively searching for more money, aggressively searching for an out, aggressively searching for freedom. And yet this freedom, this hope, this life arrives in the form of a gentle baby it doesn't have to be aggressively sought after, but just gently embraced and received. We can trust Jesus, church. We can trust him with our fears and worries, doubts and addictions. We can trust him with our brokenness, struggles and sufferings. He offers a hope that's outside of all of those things. He has the power and authority to rescue and redeem, renew and restore. He is faithful and powerful enough to calm our fears, mighty enough to rescue us from our worries, mighty enough to move our doubts strong and gentle enough to conquer our addictions, financial struggles, and suffering. I wanna close with this question as we prepare our hearts to come to the table and I wanna invite the worship team back up. Where's your hope this morning? Where are you placing your assurance did you find yourself walking into this room entertaining the idea that maybe if everything goes right this week that, that I can experience hope? Did you find yourself daydreaming about a future where you have the money that you want and the, and the career that you want and the house and the car and the life that you want? But it's absent of God. Did you find yourself this morning placing your hope in a relationship, in a lifestyle, in a specific date on the calendar that when this vacation comes or when this time in my life comes, everything will be good. No matter the situation or circumstance, do you call on Jesus and do you place your hope in him? Do you depend on God's power and draw near to him? Have you embraced Jesus? 
the God of hope, hope in the flesh? Have you received him the way somebody hands you a baby to carry the baby and enjoy him? Have you received this gift of hope? Or are you driven by fear and worry and run to other forms of comfort? Let's close our eyes and pray as we process these questions together. Lord, I ask.